think I'm a fool? I didn't think so. I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like this before. I think you just said something. Think, 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 think. Yes, it is that time to make you put on your thinking caps once again and not understand what you believe, but more importantly, and always more importantly, why you believe it. We are talking about your worldview, the grid through which you look at this place. And this keeps coming up in conversations, both at home, at work, with random people. I mean, Christian, formulate how you think about things and what you want to do. That's what the point of this is. That's what we're trying to do, so trying to be helpful. So I've come to you this week to tell you that God has not, does not, and will not forget anything. So I think I'm set up. I think I got everything good to go. We have looked at God as creator, Genesis 1 through 3. God as the preserver in Genesis 4 and 5. And God as savior and judge in Genesis 6 through 9. I told you this week we would finish our beginning looks at the history of the Bible. Before we get into patriarchal history, we would finish up primeval history with a look this week at Genesis 10, 11, and 12, where we see an understanding of the attributes of God in his faithfulness. Now, you may be wondering, I know I'm inhaling an awful lot for some reason, my nose is trying to stop up on me. You may be wondering, we're talking an awful lot about who God is. How does that formulate my worldview? And that would be a good question. The answer is because you can't start with you. You can look at this world. You can be benefited by general revelation. You can understand what God has given in nature. But in order to understand you completely, you must understand where you have come from. And then once you have understood that, you must understand the attributes of the thing, person, however you want to define God, that you have come from. Welcome to the failure of the modern secular worldview. They start with everything's an accident. Everything is chance. Everything is something other than concrete and objective. Therefore, everything is subjective. We have an objective foundation. That was why our foundation number one, God has created. And if he has created, then I am dependent upon him. I want to know who this being upon which I am dependent is. I want to know who he is, what he is, why he's doing what he's doing, and what he is accomplishing. So as you read through this primeval history, you see that he has given us good gifts. Excuse me. He has given us a lovely creation. He has given us provision, and we have spit in his face and cast it down. And then after we did that, we continue to do that. And even after he has smacked us around, we continue to do it. So that leads us to Genesis chapter 10. This is your second chapter in Genesis here in the beginning that everybody skips. It's the genealogies of the descendants of Noah. You get Shem, Ham, Japheth. They're the sons born. They're going on. You get the sons of Japheth, the sons of Ham. You get the sons of Shem. Now, have some fun. Read this. I'm not going to read it all to you. Realize how many people this is. I mean, when you look at, like, like take Japheth for a second. So he has Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras, and then the sons of Gomer, and then the sons of Javan. And you get the same thing with Ham. You get Cush, Mizraim, Put, Canaan, and then all of their children. Then you get, I just lost my spot. Where'd Shem go? Shem is the father of Eber, the older brother of Japheth. Then you get Shem, Elam, Asher, 
Arpaxad. If you're looking for a name for a kindergartner, there will be no Arpaxads in kindergarten coming up in a couple of years. I'm just, I'm just, I'm fairly certain about that one. Lud, um, Aram. I mean, this is a lot of people, and they have children, and they have children, and they have multiple children. We are getting lots and lots of people, and this becomes important because when you get into Scripture, realize that. We, we make the mistake when we read our Bible. We make two big mistakes. We see the Bible as a book of the miraculous from cover to cover, and, and it's just not. The vast majority of the works of Scripture are just people living their lives with God occasionally intervening. Excuse me. Even Abraham, for the sake of argument, goes years, decades in between appearances and talkings to God. And you go, well, he probably talked to him in the meantime. He may have. Argument from silence. I can't build anything out of that. I can only build on what's been revealed. <clears throat> Excuse me. Therefore, I can only build on the minuscule appearances and miraculous things that are given. So you get all of these, and you've got humanity spreading and growing. Realize as we deal in Scripture that we're dealing with a small minority. That's on God as preserver. As Savior and Judge, he is preserving all people, yes, but he is only preserving rightly his people. And there's a difference between those two things. So as you come through, let's stop right now. You've got all these people. You've got all this problem. We have got humanity regrowing again, just like they did in Genesis 5. You have now this table of nations chapter in Genesis 10, so to speak. Remember what God has promised. He has promised to the woman a seed from her that will crush the serpent and his offspring. Who are the offspring of the serpent? We're talking about sin. You have seen God's a picture of God's judgment against sin, his wrath poured out in the flood. Now we're still on the lookout. We're still waiting for that child. It wasn't Cain. It wasn't Abel. It wasn't Seth. It wasn't Noah. Noah didn't give us rest from the toil of the ground. We're still working our tails off. Humanity is still spreading. And remember, post-flood, what was said about Noah? The thought of humanity's heart is evil continually. That's said before the flood and after the flood. God does not remove sin by judging the world. He's got to remove sin by cleansing it, by crushing the serpent and his offspring. So we're still waiting for that, which means we get a picture of God and his faithfulness. Chapter 11. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words, and it came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, Come, let us make brick, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone, and they used tar for mortar, and they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven, and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Um, they're supposed to be scattered abroad, remember? This was the command. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. You can't fill the earth if everybody lives in one little space. <clears throat> can't be done. You have to actually spread out. They don't want to spread out. They don't want to be obedient to the command of God. They want to be disobedient and make sure that who is renowned? That they are renowned. Even after the knowledge in their world of the judgment of God against sin. They are still wallowing in sin. So you get your anthropomorphic language again. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. The Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one, they have the same language. And this is what they began to do. Now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Unfortunately, that's true about humanity. This is what we do. 
I mean, the, the great lie of humanity's history is that you let us all get together and we'll do these wonderful, amazing things. No, we won't. We will destroy culture. We will destroy families. We will destroy civilization. And we will wallow in our self-gratification and the lusts of our flesh and the desires of our eyes. That is what we will do. And you are seeing it on display. Again, by studying who God is and focusing our study on the attributes of God, his creator power, his preservation, his ability as savior and judge, his faithfulness to people, you're getting an antithesis, aren't you? You're getting a picture of humanity in light of who God is. Remember that, Christian. We don't measure ourselves by the other sinners. We measure, 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 I'm turning to Mike Tyson here. We measure ourselves by the holiness of God. <clears throat> so, God says, let us come down and go, let us go down and there confuse the language so that they will not understand one another's speech. I love that this is a means to an end on two fronts. See, we've got to confuse the speech so they'll stop working together. Why are they working together? They're working together to build a tower, to reach into heaven, not literally, but figuratively, so that they will be renowned, so that they will be well known, so that the whole earth will be full of their glory. So the Lord scattered them abroad from over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. What do you know? God fulfills his command for them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. They were fruitful. They were multiplying. They weren't filling the earth. Got to fill the earth. Well, we've also got to stop them from building the city. we got a two-for-one special going on right here in Genesis 11. New languages. If I can't understand you and you can't understand me, you know who I'm going to go hang out with? I'm going to go hang out with the people I understand. And you're going to go hang out with the people you understand, and we're not going to really run into each other a whole heck of a lot. Therefore... We are now naturally segregated. Why? Because God wants his creation mandate fulfilled, that humanity would be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth or to subdue the earth. They can't do that in the plain by Shinar, building a city to glorify themselves. Now they will be scattered in judgment, and they will fulfill the plans, purposes, and planning of God. I said that twice, didn't I? Plans, purpose, and progress. I'm not a good Baptist today. I don't have a good alliteration. They will do that. Why? Because he has ensured that it will happen. Therefore, the tower, the place was called Babylon, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. Not part of it. All of it. They have been scattered. They have been removed. Now, in light of this, at some point, don't you want to just be like, you know what? These people, these people, one of my new favorite Bible verses, just to be reminded, I think it's, uh, it's Exodus 32.9. I say it's one of my favorites, and I can't remember the exact reference. It's in the book of Exodus. Read the book of Exodus. It will do you good. God telling Moses, behold, I have seen these people, and they are a stubborn people. <laughs> I don't think that's true of just Israel. I think that's true of all humanity. But if you're following along, you're looking at these folks going, if anybody deserves a good whacking, it's them. They need to be smacked in the back of the head, Gibbs style, cast aloft, and just, you know, forgotten everything. But God is faithful. So instead of pursuing this judgment, the next verse, these are the records of the generation of Shem. And you get through Shem, and we go through our Paxad. Again, not going to be many kids named our Paxad when you get them to kindergarten. 
Shem lived 500 years after he became the father of our Paxad, and he had other sons and daughters. Now, from our Paxad, we got Sheila, and then from Sheila, we get Eber, and then from Eber, we get Peleg, and then from Peleg, we get Ru. Ru, I don't even know how you say that one. It's They're hard enough in Hebrew, much less in English. So you get Ryu, and then you get Sarug. Again, there's not going to be many Sarugs going on. It's a good football name, isn't it? I mean, you want if you want a defensive lineman, you want him named Sarug. Like, you don't want Toby playing defensive tackle. I want some 400-pound dude with no neck who bench presses a house named Sarug. Just sounds like somebody heavy and strong. So, Sarug gets us to Nahor. Nahor lives 29 years and became the father of Terah. Now we're starting to pick up. Also, notice, fun little aside, Genesis 11. Notice how the years start to slow down. They don't live as long as we get farther and farther away from the flood. Here's your big fancy theological word of the day. In the antediluvian world, that is the post-flood world, what you have is a, a hus- the word just went right out of my head, a habitat that is inhospitable to human, um, I need one more H. I got nothing. I got nothing. Flourishing, unfortunately. I can't come up with another H on the fly. Sorry, I was almost a good Baptist. Almost. So close. So, Terah lived 75 years and became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And those of you that have paid attention in Sunday school should immediately go, wait a minute, I know that guy. I know that Abram dude. He's important, isn't he? Yes. Yes, he is. Remember what we're waiting for. We're waiting for the seed of the woman. Abram is not the seed of the woman. He is of the seed of Terah. If you don't understand basic biology, I will let you go find a science book to make sense of that. So Terah took his son Abram and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan. And they went as far as Haran and settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now, this is God being faithful. And what I mean by that is how many people are on this world? You've had descendants from Shem, from Ham, from Japheth. You've had multiple descendants from even within Shem, even within these branches from Shem. We've had multiple descendants, and now we're going to focus in on one, because God has not forgotten what he has promised, and God has not forgotten what he will do. So this is your transition from primeval to patriarchal history. The Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house, to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So, <clears throat> that should connect. You should read that in Genesis 12, 3 and be like, wait a minute. I know how all the families of the world would be blessed. That the seed promised to Eve would come and he would crush the serpent and the serpent's offspring, which is sin. That we would have the rest that they longed for in Noah. That they would have the worship of God and the dominion over creation the way that it was promised and the way that we failed at Babel. That's how the whole world would be blessed, by God accomplishing what he has promised and fulfilling all that he has said to do. So... If you're not paying attention, you'll again, just think about this like you've never read anything past this point. This is helpful. Where, where, what is it? Is it Locke? No, it's not Locke. Oh, who's the Tabula Rasa guy? Is that Locke? Oh, never mind. My, I can't, I'm, I'm a failure to my, bio, uh, to my uh, bachelor's degree that I can't remember if it's John Locke or not in the Tabula Rasa. And I'm trying to figure out if it's somebody else. And that's just, ah, I'm a terrible history professor and I apologize for that. 
And so, anyway, so as you follow through, your first thought would be, maybe, may, oh, it was Locke. I had to look it up real quick on my phone. Don't you love technology? I can do it, guys. I can do it. And so what can happen here is if you are that blank slate, you go, well, maybe Abram, maybe he's the seed. He can't be the seed. Why can't he be the seed? I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. Well, but maybe he could still be the seed. That's what the seed should do. He should found a people, right? Agreed. But he's got to crush sin in order to do it. What in Abram makes you think he is the seed of the woman and that he is capable of crushing sin? And the answer is up to this point, nothing. Realize this. From this point forward in your Bible, every time you run across a human being, you know what you should assume? You should assume that they're an utter failure and are going to let you down, and they're going to do it quickly and spectacularly. So Abram went forth from the, as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And he took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they camped in the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Morah. Now the Canaanite was in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So we're reiterating the promise. So Abram built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. This, this is good. God has made you a promise. You have believed it. You are building an altar. You are now worshiping. This is good. Then he proceeded to go from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Okay, I'm with you, but why are we there? Why would you leave that spot? So fun, fun, um, symbolism here. Bethel literally means house of El, house of God. I literally means destruction. <clears throat> Just love the symbolism here that Abram has pitched his tent. He has made his dwelling smack dab in the middle of the house of God and the city of destruction. And then Abram journeyed on, continuing toward the Negev, which is the wilderness. So he leaves his perch planted between God and destruction, and travels off into the wilderness. If I wanted to be really allegorical, Christian, that's kind of where you live today, which is why this is important to think through things in a biblical manner. Because we are, remember, are now not yet of salvation. We have been saved by the work of Christ. We are being saved by the work of the Holy Spirit, the sanctification that is being accomplished. So justified in Christ, sanctified in the Spirit, and we will be saved at the culmination of all things when Christ presents his people to the Father, a la 1 Corinthians 15 and the book of Revelation. So we are saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved, meaning though we walk now by faith, not by sight. We walk in a world that is the antithesis of what God is and what he is going for. We walk in a world that wants Babel. We walk in a world that wants its depravity in the flood. We walk in a world that walks after the way of Cain. I'm kind of quoting some parts of Jude and Second Peter to you, but that's intentional. <clears throat> Excuse me. Because this is, the, this is the decision and the pathway we've got to forge. If we are not careful to see the world in light of who God is, what he has promised, what he has done, and how we are to live in light of what he has done, we will not think of this world in a Christian manner. We will drift. We will join up with the crowd at Babel and be like, hey, you know, what's, what's the big deal? It's kind of an awesome building. I like awesome buildings. And maybe my name can be on one of the bricks, and that will be cool. It doesn't matter. What matters is, does God know your name? 
Have you built the right altars in your life to worship the right thing? Case in point, I told you, every time you see a human being, expect them to fail you spectacularly. There was a famine in the land, so Abram trusted in God to give him this land and planted his flag and trusted in the Lord. No, no, he didn't. He went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. And it came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, See now, I know that you are a beautiful woman. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. And they will kill me, but they will let you live. So Sarai is so stinking hot. They're going to be like, Let's whack this dude and take his wife for ourselves. <laughs> Please say that you are my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you, and that I may live on a Count of you. And it came about when Abram came into Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. So Sarai just got like drafted into the harem. It's good to be the king. Therefore, he treated Abram well for her sake. It's good to be the, uh, the brother, apparently, of the hot, hottest chick in the town. So, and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. That's a good haul. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Notice this real quick. You're Abram. You have believed in the promise of God. You have worshipped at the altar. He has promised you what? Let's zoom back up to the top of the chapter. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be, and so you shall be a blessing. I can't be a nation if I die and don't have any kids. My name can't be great if I go down into Egypt and I get my butt killed. My name won't be a blessing if nobody knows who I am. Again, the temptation of Babel was to accomplish that through human means and human intervention, to build the tower so that no one could possibly forget us. The offer here to Abram, the promise here is that you will receive what Babel was trying to get, but you will receive it not by your great work, not by your great accomplishment, but by your great faith. Why can you have great faith and trust in what God has promised? Because everything God has promised, he has delivered, and he has not forgotten any of it. Here's the proof. Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? And that I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. Now, you want to talk about fun little notes? Who's righteous in this story? Because it's not Abram. It's Pharaoh. The pagan, right? The non-promised of God. The descendant of Mizraim. He's the righteous one. He is the one who is doing right, well, and good. He is the one who's been like, what do you mean this is your wife? I don't want to take your wife into my harem. Go. Get out. And notice he didn't even ask for the stuff back. So Abram gets to leave with flocks and herds and... I'm suddenly quoting America from the 70s. Where were tanks and birds and rocks and things? <laughs> Abram gets to keep all of that, and, and Pharaoh's just like, go, get, just get out. I want to be righteous. I don't want to do this. I don't want to be wronged. I don't want to wrong you. Again, why? Because God has moved. God has commanded. God is accomplishing. The lesson to Abram is you should trust in that. The lesson to Abram is that you should walk in that. The lesson to Christians today is God has promised a preservation. God has promised a peace and a security, not of body, but of heart, mind, and soul in Christ. And as we are faithful to turn from our sins, and as we are faithful to walk trustingly 
in him. As we are faithful for these, we are granted a peace, again, as Jesus says, not as the world gives, but a peace which surpasses all understanding, which enables the great saints of old to stand firm against the Roman authorities, which, which enables the saints of the Middle Ages to stand firm against the Inquisition, which has enabled saints down through the years to walk faithfully regardless of what the world said, what the world offered, and what the world threatened to take from them. We can walk faithfully because God is faithful. We can see that as our Creator— He has sustained us, and he will judge sin, and he will deliver his people. But we, as his people, will not face that wrath. And so, whatever the world may do, it's nothing compared to the blessings that God has promised. So we trust that he will provide, we trust that he has provided, and we walk forward in this world. That's how you have to think about this. If you don't, (sighs) there be dragons. So what have we learned here today, children? God accomplishes his purposes, God will not be forsaken, and God will complete his work. Whether you're on board or not, Abram thought he was on board, wasn't really on board. What do you get? You get God completing anyway. So hopefully this is useful for you guys. Hopefully this is somewhat helpful. Questions, comments, complaints, send them to info at practicaltheologyministries.com. You can go to that website, practicaltheologyministries.com. You can find links to everything you want to find, books, reading plans, sermons, teachings, all that good stuff. Again, questions, info at practicaltheologyministries.com. Hopefully Lou and I are together again tomorrow. We are going to continue on with some good theology stuff. And then Cameron and I will be looking on Thursday at some of the fun stories of the week, and I have some doozies. The world went especially crazy in the last week, and I have like three weeks' worth of stuff. So we're just going to have fun for the next couple weeks, stretching it out and dragging it out. So until we meet again, read your Bible. It'll do you good. Bye.